Hey, this is Jamie from Stonemeyer Games, and today I'm here to answer some questions brought to you by the amazing students at a poly-ed after-school program in New York City. Um, the teacher, Andrew Sabatino, sent me these questions, and they were asked today, just today, by a number of students. And these are great questions. I, I, I get a variety of questions all the time, and these are really, really good questions. So I'll just jump in and start to answer them. Uh, Noah asked, what board games do you think should be role models for good design? That's a great question, Noah. There, there's a lot of games that I think, uh, I don't know, I, I'm hesitant to say that there are games that you should play, but um, my general answer to that is that I have learned a lot personally from playing a wide variety of games. So I typically gravitate towards medium weight Euro games, but I've learned a lot from playing games that are well outside that category. Um, just observing how people interact with different different types of designs and seeing mechanisms that are found in like really light games or really heavy games that might find their way into a medium weight game. Uh, so it's a little difficult to specify specific games that, that I think are role models for good design. Um, but I can mention a few of my favorite games and I think these are these exemplify at least some elements of good game design. A few of my favorites right now are Dune Imperium, which is a deck building game. Um, I've, I've, I learned a ton from playing Dune Imperium uh, based on the different variety of the cards, how the game uses the theme of the Dune world um, in, in its mechanisms. The worker placement system, I think, is really clever. It just has a lot of interesting little things that come together in a gr really great format. And uh, I've done a long-form video about that game because I, I, I think it has so much um, in the game to learn from. And another game that I've done a long-form video about is a much more recent game, or a relatively more recent game, Ark Nova. Um, Ark Nova is one of the heavier Euro games that I really enjoy. And there's just, there's a lot of little systems in the game, but they're all distilled down to this very streamlined action selection system. I think it's a great game to play if you are designing a complex game, um, but you wanna make it accessible to a wide variety of people using uh, a clever action selection system. Um, I think Arc Nova is a great game to play. And those are two heavier games, so I should probably mention one lighter game. Um, a lighter game that I really enjoy that was an inspiration for one of my games is Fantasy Realms. I think Fantasy Realms is a great example of a very short, easy-to-teach game. It plays in 15 minutes um, that has just a, a ton of interesting mechanisms in it. It's a game about comboing together different cards to form a great hand of cards at the end of the game. Um, it was an inspiration for a game of mine called Red Rising. You can kind of see it in the corner of the camera right here. I have it on my desk. Um, but yeah, I think Fantasy Realms is a great lighter, shorter game to play if you're looking to, uh, to get some ideas for game design. Douglas asked, how can I iterate my game if I can't schedule any play tests? So I see kind of two answers to this question. One is, um, I, I'm curious to, to hear why, uh, why you aren't able to schedule any playtest. Is it a lack of interest from friends or, and family? Um, are, do you not have uh, local meetups that are accessible to you? Uh, I, I, you know, I'm sure there's a, there's a good reason why, why you have that, uh, that, that impediment in the way. Um, I'm just trying to get to the heart of, is it, uh, does it feel like you can't get any playtests or have you pursued all possible avenues to find playtests? One thing that I found really helpful for me early on when I was starting out with design is I was playtesting with a lot of friends and I was trying not to burden them with this game that didn't work very well, that ended up being a game called Viticulture that has done very well since it became published. Um, and so I'd play like one game with a friend and then I'd move on to a different friend because I didn't want to bother that first friend again. And on one of those playtests, one of my friends, Alan, uh, contacted me after the playtest and said, hey, I had a lot of fun with that. I want to do that more often. I, I, I want to be involved in the creation of this game. And 
so I found a partner to work on the game with, and that really, really helped. And so uh, for kind of the first part of that question, I'd recommend trying that, like try to play test with different friends. And if you happen to find someone who is just as passionate about the game as you are, then you have a partner in the game and then you don't have to feel bad. You can always go to that person and talk about the different ideas that you're processing to play test the game. That can be a huge breakthrough if you can find a partner for your game. However, if you really can't do any of that, you, you can't find anyone to play test with, um, it is possible to play test your game alone. You can play as multiple players. I did this a lot in the early stages of the, of the pandemic um, where I, I didn't have anyone else to play test with. And so I would pull out a game, I would, I would print and cut it and assemble it and put it on the table. And I would either play as multiple players or I would play just as myself and use a random element to simulate what the other players were doing. It isn't a perfect simulation of what other human players will do at the table with you, but it was a suitable um, replacement for uh, playtesting partners at the time, and it did help me iterate the game and see what was working and what didn't work. Anonymous asked, anonymous question here, what is your least favorite main, mainstream board game? I really try to keep my YouTube channel and my, my, uh, the way that I talk about games positive because these are my peers and I know how much time and effort it takes to design and play test and develop and publish a game. Um, so even if I don't like a game, and there are plenty of games that I don't really enjoy, um, way more that I do enjoy, I, I, I don't like to talk poorly of it or speak lowly of it. So what I will say is that there are certain categories of games that I rarely get excited about. Um, I rarely get excited about party games. Um, they, there are exceptions to that. Just One, I love. Telestrations, I love. Uh, but in general, any type of party game that put, kind of puts the spotlight on one person, um, as an introvert, I don't really enjoy that. And so I don't enjoy party games in general. I generally gravitate away from war games. Um, there are exceptions to that as well. I love Kemet. Scythe has a, a combat element to it. As a kid, I loved Risk. As an adult, I loved Risk Legacy. Um, but mostly... War games, and especially historically themed war games, are not exciting to me. And the last category are uh, tactical combat games, which are often put into the category of dungeon crawlers, because a lot of dungeon crawlers are just games where the game is asking you to fight a bunch of different monsters in different ways. And uh, that, has, that really has very little appeal to me thematically, and um, it ends up feeling rep very repetitive for me mechanically as I play these games. Um, so those are three categories of games that I don't typically get very excited about, and that there are very few games in those categories that I've really enjoyed. Andrew asked, how do I feel about the consolidation of the industry under Asmodee? It's a great, great industry question here, Andrew. Um, uh, for those who, who aren't aware of, uh, of the context of this question, there's a big company in the game industry called Asmodee, and Asmodee often uh, tries to buy uh, other companies in the industry to to gain their intellectual property, to bring in more talent into their company. Um, and uh, they, they've they've bought some of the biggest, the, the companies that were bigger before Asmodee, they bought some of those companies. They bought a company called Fantasy Flight. They bought, um, they bought uh, uh, Days of Wonder, which published Ticket to Ride, um, and other companies along the way. Uh, and my feelings about it, for the most part, uh, as I've learned more about what actually happens when Asmodee acquires a company, is that I'm kind of okay with it. Um, I think the way Asmodee typically does it is that they acquire a company, and unlike kind of hostile corporate takeovers that happen outside the game industry, Asmodee typically lets these companies operate as independent studios. Um, it, 
they don't want to add more work to them. No one wants to add more work for themselves. And so when Asmodee buys a company, they're buying it because they want that company to continue to do what they already do so well. And I think that's I think that's fine. I think as a consumer, I see very little impact on that. As someone who loves games, I see very little impact because I st we still see these awesome people creating awesome games um, within a bigger umbrella. Um, there are a few po policies that Asmodee has that I don't love, like their replacement parts policy. They don't have one anymore. They said they, we don't want to replace missing or broken parts from games. I, I don't love that, but um, the consolidation itself, because these studios continue to operate essentially autonomously and independently um, to serve and, and bring joy to tabletops worldwide, I'm all for that. And so I, um, I feel okay with it. Claire asked, how have video games influenced the evolution of modern board games? I, so I am someone who doesn't play a lot of video games, but I love learning about video games to, to see how they can possibly impact my, my uh, tabletop games. And I think one of the big ways, I, I'm sure there, this is a great question, I think there are many ways that video games have impacted modern board games. And I think we've seen the opposite too. We've seen very popular um, games like Slay the Spire, a digital game, Slay the Spire, uh, which, uh, which is essentially a deck building game. But um, a, without deck building games on the tabletop, I don't think Slay the Fire would exist. There are games like um, Hearthstone. Hearthstone probably wouldn't exist without Magic. So I think it goes the other way too. But the way that you asked it, Claire, the way that I see it impacting games the most currently and moving forward is that video games don't often require players to... Um, well, they hardly ever require players to read a rulebook. It just doesn't happen. The tutorial happens in the game itself, either kind of subtly behind the scenes, like the game just unravels one new mechanism at a time, or there's a formal tutorial that you play through before the game lets you free to do whatever you want in the game. Um, and I think that is the biggest area that we've seen impact board games over the last five or so years, and that, that we'll see uh, video games impact board games in the future, because... Um, there are many gamers that don't mind sitting down to read a, a 20, 30 page rule book, but uh, with a number of games on anyone's shelf of opportunity, having an easier way to onboard yourself into the game um, through a tutorial or just some sort of video game inspired learning process, I think makes a game much more likely to get to the table and for people to enjoy it quicker. And so I think that's one thing that I'm trying to learn as a designer and that I'm seeing other publishers try to learn as well. Noah asked, uh, what do I see as the most frequently occurring design flaw? The most frequently occurring design flaw. That is a really, really good question, Noah. Um, so there, there's a lot of like little design flaws that I, I don't see all that often, like things that require a player to, to miss their turn, to skip their turn, or have a dead turn. But I don't see that a lot in modern games. But one thing that I do see, um, and I'll have to think, this is a great question, I'll have to think about this a little bit more, but um, one thing I, I, I see a little bit too often, and I even have it in some of my games, is uh, more of a graphic design flaw, but it ties to the game design. And that is, if you are asking players to read text, usually on cards, sometimes on tiles, from across the table. So if you have cards on the table that players need to see to decide if they want that card or not, um, and, and the way that you position those cards is really far away from some players at the table. It's basically designers fitting, forgetting that people sit in different orientations around a game table. Um, I think that's, a, that's generally a problem. I, I think it can be solved by putting big icons on the cards instead of text or having both text and icons. So you have the icon and then below it you have the text that shows what the icon means. 
Um, I think that can really help. Although on the reverse side, another kind of common design flaw are games that require, that rely too heavily on a huge number of icons. Um, that you're asking players to remember so many different icons, some of which might be intuitive, but some of them might not be all that intuitive. So the combination of those two things, uh, keeping in mind where players are sitting, what they can actually see from their vantage point across the table, and uh, keeping in mind how much uh, players you're asking players to remember, um, whether it's whether it's icons or ongoing triggers, anything that you're asking them for for mental overload uh, to remember as you play the game. Douglas asked, how can we get the excitement and stakes of a player elimination game without actually having player elimination? Um, I think maybe the number one way to do this, Douglas, I, really, maybe not number one, but one of the ways to do this is to allow for character elimination, but not player uh, elimination. An example of this, and this isn't quite elimination, but it's pretty close, is there's a game called Camel Up that you may have heard of. And so Camel Up is a racing game uh, where you have these little camels that are racing around a track and they move fairly randomly, but you can influence their movement just a little bit. And players are not the camels. So I do not have the red camel. I am, I am not the red camel. However, I can bet on the red camel. I can impact the red camel a little bit. Um, I can also bet on other camels and have my, my uh, success in the game tied to those camels. So separating the players from the characters or whatever you have on the table um, can allow for a lot of things like elimination to happen within that space on the table. So if Camel Up doesn't really have elimination, there can be definitely be camels that lag behind, but you can also bet on which camel you think will be the, the camel that loses first. But that's a distinct difference between if I controlled one camel and I, one camel was only associated with me, um, that, would, that, would, that could lead to some really negative feelings. Uh, if, if I was eliminated, if my camel just fell so far behind early in the game. But because I'm betting on camels throughout the game, I am not the camel in the game. I think that's one way that you can have the stakes and the feeling of, um, of elimination without having to actually eliminate players instead of you're eliminating, you're eliminating the characters or the tokens on the board. Alec asked, where does your uh, play group come down on game length? We, so my game nights are usually around two hours. And so... Um, we are usually trying to select games that play in around 60 to 90 minutes or a little bit longer than that. Uh, so that fits into that, that uh, medium weight Euro game category. However, there are, uh, there are people in our group and, uh, and, and I would say all of us are fine with playing a shorter game and then also playing a longer game or just playing a, a series of shorter games. I would say though, in general, in my group, um, and speaking at least partially on behalf of me, I generally don't play games that play longer than two hours, longer than two and a half hours. Uh, there are a few exceptions to that, but in general, uh, that's kind of where my attention span, I, a game can grab my attention span for that amount of time, and then after that, um, might be a little bit too much. So that's, that's me and my game group uh, combined a little bit there for that answer. Douglas asked, can board games be art? Um, this is a, a kind of a more philo philosophical question. I think board games can be art. I, I know for sure in terms of the art, I, I, I picture, when I think of board games, I think of more about the illustrations and the games as the art itself. But I think the act of playing the game and, and what you're designing for someone's experience, because I think art, that's a lot of what art is. You are designing something for, for an experience. You're creating an experience, whether it's a, you know, a book, a movie, uh, a painting, you are creating something for someone to experience in a specific way. And I think that's exactly what games do. Um, I, I design for the experience. I design to create a specific experience for the players themselves.
Claire asked, what average game length do you look for in a game that you're publishing? This ties a little bit to Alex's question because I am biased in the games that I select as a publisher based on the games that I enjoy playing. And the, uh, the, the type of games that we look for are games that play in generally 60 to 90 minutes. They can go down a little bit to around 45 minutes. Rolling Realms can even play a little bit faster in around 30 minutes. Um, and games that sometimes they might push that two hour uh, border, but generally 60 to 90 is the sweet spot that we're looking for because at Stomar Games, we're specifically looking for what I would call event games. We're looking for games that are the centerpiece of a game night. Um, and uh, it's a somewhat arbitrary category, but that's just what we've, what we've pursued over the years, the, the pursuing event games. So 60 to 90 minutes is typically what we pursue. Andrew asked, are there any other designers you follow and try all of their published work? There are, I mean, there are a ton of designers that I follow very closely, that I love their work, that I either buy or play almost every one of their games. Um, Ryan Lockett from Red Raven Games. Elizabeth Hargrave, one of the designers that's, that's uh, made, that designed Wingspan for Stonemaier Games. Uh, ben Rossett and Matthew O'Malley. So I'm thinking of a couple of designers that have designed stuff for stuff ben, uh, for Stonemaier Games. Ben Rossett and Matthew O'Malley worked on Between Two Castles, Between Two Cities. Um, I love seeing what they're creating. Um, and uh, Keith from Thunderworks Games, I think he, 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 he's known for, for role player the most, but I love the variety of games in his role player universe. Um, I'm leaving out some amazing designers here. Who else am I forgetting? Actually, Paolo Mori, who, who designed uh, Libertalia, Winds of Yelcrest over here on the table. I love Paolo's work. Um, Rob Davio, he, he is the, the designer who created the whole legacy idea years and years ago with Risk Legacy. He, uh, I don't play every game that Rob makes, but I am fascinated by everything Rob makes. Um, oh, purely because I don't have time to play every, every legacy game that comes out. But uh, yeah, I, I love fo following what Rob does. Um, there are a lot more. I mean, I, I, follow, I, I follow a lot of games, whether I'm playing them or I'm learning about what these designers are doing. But those are a few of my favorite designers, I would say. Oh, and I left out a big one, Uwe Rosenberg and Alexander Pfister. Um, again, I don't play every game that Uva and Alexander create. Um, Uva designs a lot of games, Alexander, um, maybe one game a year. But uh, Alexander Pfister is probably, my favorite game of his is uh, Isle of Sky. I love, I'm looking over at my game shelf over here. Isle of Sky, I love that game. And Uva Rosenberg, um, I love how his games can range from very simple, like patchwork, to very complex, using kind of a similar mechanism as patchwork, to like a feast for Odin. Um, yeah, he's, he's a designer that I, that I follow quite closely. Last, Claire asked, how does market research inform your decision to publish a game by a new designer? That's an interesting question, Claire. So, um, yeah, so... When we have a game submitted to us, we don't publish many games at Stomar Games. Usually it's one or two games a year. And we're usually planning around three years ahead. Um, we have a, a game submission form where we usually get a few hundred game submissions a year. And um, my, my game design partner, Alan, uh, or co-founder Alan at this point, he, uh, he reviews the submissions that come through on the form. And he picks the ones that he thinks might be really exciting for us to check out. Um, and part of the prop along the way, part of the process is me not only seeing, is this game really fun and a good fit for some of our games, but time back to your question here, will it sell? Will it bring joy to a lot of people? Because, 
Uh, even though we could bring joy to 100 people through a game that 100 people love, uh, if we're going to, since we only create or publish only a few games a year, we invest a lot of time and energy and resources and money into these games. We want games that are ideally going to become evergreen, evergreen games that are going to sell from year to year for a long time. And so knowing or having a rough idea of what people want is what it comes down to, I think, for market research. What do people want? What are people excited about? What are they going to buy now? What are they going to buy um, for years to come is a big part of uh, the process, a big part of what I need to know when I select a game. And uh, I, I think that... The, so I don't think there's there's one easy answer to how I perform market research, but I basically just try to pay pay very close attention all the time to what's happening in the game industry, the game community, what people are talking about, what people are excited about, why they're excited about games. So this includes following a lot of reviewers and blogs, of course. Um, I, I subscribe to hundreds of game design or game-related YouTube channels, podcasts, and blogs in, in my Feedly reader. Um, but I also pay very close attention to what people are talking about on BoardGameGeek, um, what people are talking about in the game industry as a whole, um, because I want to know what people are excited about. And also part of it comes down to uh, the games that we play test here at Stonemaier Games, learning what people get excited about when they play those games, whether it's an in-person playtest, a local playtest, or a blind, unguided playtest. What, what are people getting excited about, and how can I extrapolate that to future games that we might consider? Great question there. Uh, really, all these are wonderful questions. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to think of these questions and to ask them. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your class. If you have any other questions, any follow-up questions, feel free to let me know. I'm happy to help out with them, uh, either in the comments below or over, over email through uh, Mr. Sabatino. All right, thanks.